by switching to a high assay, low enriched uranium fuel, you're able to have a system that can be developed, owned and operated by a commercial entity mm. because it's not weapons grade material. And so by making that fundamental switch, you're enabling a technology that previously was a government weapons technology to become a commercial system. Welcome to Uptech Report. This is our Apply Tech series. Uptech Report is sponsored by TerraLeap. Learn how to leverage the power of video at TerraLeap.io. Today, I'm joined by my guest, Paolo Veneri, who's based in Seattle, Washington. He's the CEO at USNC Tech. Welcome, Paolo. Good to have you on. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Now, USNC Tech is, you guys are focused on developing nuclear technology for human permanence in space. What a statement. I'm excited for this whole conversation. Now your background, PhD uh, from Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology in nuclear and quantum engineering. And your ultimate goal is to be the first utility on the moon and Mars, providing safe power. I like it, I am excited. Were you always, like, was this in your brain from, from early on? Like where did this whole vision and focus come from? Well. If I would say it actually started pretty early on. Um, I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, uh, growing, around, growing up around scientists, engineers, really thinking outside of the box. And part of that is being exposed to science fiction at a very early age. And so whenever you read these science fiction books, watch science fiction movies, there's always that power source that enables everything. Like, you know, there's, there's really amazing settlements in space, you know, going across uh, the solar system, galaxies, there's always that power source. And you're developing like, right. that power source is enabling for everything. <laughs> you looked at, if, if I want this future world to exist, the power, ha that's the starting point. And let me get involved in that. Exactly. Uh, now, speaking of your environment and those that inspired you, your father right, uh, started USNC, is that correct? That is correct. Back in 2011. 2011. So you're already around that and, and his, his own interest aligns with that. Did you go to school already prior to this? Like, what was the timeline of all of your personal involvement and, and moving towards this future vision? So let's see, when I went to undergrad, I did uh, physics and international relations. You know, science is a very international field. Doing these big projects is international, international affair. There I got exposed to non-proliferation and non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. It's actually a very sophisticated field, how you can have peaceful use of nuclear technology without having nuclear weapons as well. Um, it definitely gives you an interesting insight into nuclear as a global regime. I feel like most people, when they think of nuclear, they're thinking of weapons of mass destruction and not a tool to actually move humanity forward. Yeah, it, yes. It's, uh, luckily, there's nuclear everywhere that enables a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also in part because of non-proliferation work. And so part of that is designing systems that use non-weapons grade material, such as what is known as low enriched uranium. Um, so that was a perspective that I developed in, in, in undergrad through exposure to this field. And then I did my PhD work at, in South Korea, where they were building and developing nuclear reactors for commercial applications on the ground. And there I focused on looking at nuclear propulsion for in-space applications. And there the, the focus of that was looking at this technology that had actually been developed and tested back in the 60s 
and seeing whether you could develop that technology using commercial grade nuclear fuel. So using low enriched uranium and basically developing systems that can be used and operated by commercial companies. Because the, the, the difference in between commercial grade and not, there's so much complexities. If you're, you, obviously you could use non-commercial grade, but if you want that proliferation or, or to be able to grow, you have to bring it down. And you've proven that it is possible. Exactly. And that was actually one of the key things that we did was showing that using non-weapons grade fuel, um, you could have a system in space that has similar performance characteristics as a system that uses weapons grade fuel. And the key, dis the, the way we actually distinguish between weapons grade fuel and non-weapons grade is how easy it is to make a nuclear weapon out of it. Weapons grade fuel, you can make a nuclear weapon out of it. You know, you just have to know how to make it. Instead, with a non-weapons grade material, it becomes much, much more difficult to make a nuclear weapon out of it, just simply from the physics standpoint. Gotcha. So that's, that's the, the differentiation. Now, were you personally like involved in that, that discovery? What was that moment like? So it actually was, was, a, it was an interesting moment. Um, you know, when you first start your PhD uh, work, your, your first task is identify what your thesis topic is going to be. And I was looking at it, I was like, okay, nuclear thermal propulsion. I'm really excited. This is very cool stuff, nuclear power systems for space. You know, this is what I want to do. And then as I was reading, doing my literature review, I found that every single thing that had been published was with high enriched uranium or weapons-grade material. I'm like, wait, what do you mean? This is... This doesn't work. Um, and so at that point, I was like, wait, let's, let's see if whether we can make this work uh, with, uh, with low enriched uranium. And, you know, you, you run your models and your simulations and it worked. Was it, was it, what, did you just suddenly start to share it with people and then they, they got the concept or was it, was it readily accepted and say, wow, this has potential or was it no interest when you first shared it? Well, funny you should ask, it actually originally was not accepted very widely. Um, I would go and present at a couple conferences and a lot of these you know, more experienced engineers would be like, no, there's flat out, there's no way it's going to work. It's going to be too heavy. It's, you know, it's, there's no reason why we would do this. Um, you know, with high enriched uranium, we can make this work. Why would we ever go with this, you know, theoretically lower performance fuel? Um, but after about a year or so, some, some key folks over at NASA started picking this up and like, wait, this could change how we do nuclear systems um, for space applications. And since then, you know, now we have the NASA Nuclear Thermal Propulsion Program is all using low enriched uranium fuel. The DARPA program, which is working on uh, nuclear thermal propulsion, is also looking at high assay LU as the only fuel that they're going to be using. And, and it's, this is all because of your, your thesis. If you go far back enough, yes, a lot of cascading things happened <laughs> since then. But you know, I like to think that I had a, had a part in doing that and enabling that to happen. Hey, obviously, keeping that energy and, and focus when people keep saying no, I'm, I'm, was that easy for you? Where you're like, oh, no, no, I feel this, I'm going to push this forward. Or did you ever have a moment you're like, I don't know, maybe I should switch to something different? Uh, I never had that moment of thinking of switching to something different. I definitely had, you know, a lot of self doubt. Like, wait, you know, everybody's saying it can't be done, but it's 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 working. Is you know, am I doing this right? Luckily, I, I found a, a team of folks that was you know both very good and competent that worked with me and essentially validated the work that I was doing on different systems, looking from different perspectives, um, and we built a team out of that that is still with me today. 
So you, you bring the thesis, you prove it, you stuck with it, you found the team. Fast forward to today, it's actually, you say, it's being implemented. You guys are working on it. What can you share of what's happening right now? So today in the United States, um, there's two big nuclear thermal, nu- space nuclear programs going on right now. We've got the NASA Nuclear Thermal Propulsion Program, where they're working on an engine demonstrator for future Mars missions. Um, and then you've got a DARPA-led uh, program to develop a nuclear thermal propulsion system for operation in cislunar space. Mm. Cislunar space is basically everything between here and the moon and around it. Got it. So it's much closer. But so in both cases, it's, it's uh, DARPA's here and then NASA's further Mars. In both cases, it should be usable. Exactly. And then there's also a program that NASA is putting together for developing nuclear reactors for the lunar surface. We're involved in all three of these in some level or another. Um, We're one of the NASA primes for the nuclear thermal propulsion program for NASA, one of three teams that were selected that we're leading. Um, We're supporting Blue Origin in support of their work on on the Draco side, developing the spacecraft that uses nuclear rockets. And then we are definitely working on that reactor for the lunar surface. For sure. What, what are you most excited about in all those opportunities? Honestly, it's, a, it's like picking your favorite child. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough one um, because, you know, first, you know, you need advanced propulsion to get places faster and, and better, right? Go farther, faster. And then once you're there, you need power to really do things, right? If you want to mine, mine uh, materials on the lunar surface, if you want to have people living on the moon or on Mars for long periods of time, you need lots of power. Just like you need it to get there and you need it to stay there. I, I think a lot of people don't consider the, the power needed. Like the general audience or viewer or, or, or person may think of just, oh, let's just get there and then, okay, I don't know, throw up some solar panels. I mean, how do you view the, the interest? Is, are, are you always having to educate people on the need for uh, this type of, of consistent power? So I think intellectually, we understand that, that we need it, but actually understanding in your bones that you need power consistently and that much power, it's not something that we're really accustomed to, right? Mm-hmm. Nowadays, most, most uh, activities in space are science missions, right? Where they have been trained to develop systems that use watts and at most like a you know, kilowatt of power. Mm-hmm. Your toaster oven requires you know tens tens of kilowatts to, to operate and your and your house if you look at your at the bill for for your house at the end of the month um you know you're using 100 kilowatt hours like it's it's a lot of power now if you want to be on the moon it's everything you're already doing in your house and then reprocessing reprocessing all of the air uh purifying water keeping the temperature at, at, at a comfortable living level as well as you know watching netflix uh, you know, relaxing, eating food that is, is, is tasty. It's, it's power intensive. Now, the, the opportunities of particularly this low enriched, um, and that's what's described, high assay, low enriched uranium. That's, that's the HALU, what, what you're mm-hmm. developing, correct? You, you strongly feel that's the best option just because of it's commercially available and versus going for other solutions that exist, right? Well, the... At, at, at the core of it, uh, by switching to a high assay, low enriched uranium fuel, you're able to have a system that can be o- developed, owned, and operated by a commercial entity. Mm. 
because it's not weapons grade material. And so by making that fundamental switch, you're enabling a technology that previously was a government weapons technology to become a commercial system. And if you truly want something to scale and bring in the enterprise, bring in, bring in the opportunities for businesses to do it. And if anything, I feel like we're, we're experiencing that more and more in headlines of billionaires who are going to space and people are like starting to realize that this is more readily available. I'm curious for your own personal perspective. Do you feel like this, uh, the, the popular, popular interest is again growing for, for space? It absolutely is. I mean, have, have, have you been seeing what's going on in the headlines these days? It's uh, launch costs have dropped down by an order of magnitude in the last, you know, in the last number of years. The number of launches going into space—it's approaching that hockey stick kind of kind of paradigm. It's becoming easier. Things are happening. Um, it's yeah. It's what do you see as then the, the main barriers that they're going to prevent for the continued um, development and growth of space movement and exploration? So one of the key barriers historically is access to space, mm-hmm. right? So it used to cost more than, about, more than your weight in gold to send something up into space. And that's actually lowballing it. Now it's becoming affordable. Like you, you can have universities on a university budget sending satellites into orbit. Um, you have uh, activities working on sending hundreds of metric tons into space, which it, it, it's unheard of, um, but it's becoming a, a very real possibility now to see that within the next five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, now, once you're there, what are you going to do? I mean, if you have a hundred metric tons of, of, of payload to work with, you can do a lot of things, but you, in order to do all of those things, you need power. And I think that's actually one of the key limiters to us being able to actually take it full advantage of this newly realized access to space is having power there to be able to do everything you want to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're actually doing right now is developing that technology so that when all of these activities want to be starting in space, we'll have the power there to enable them to do that. Developing this technology for space, is it very different than developing for terrestrial for use? Because that's what your parent company, USNC, focuses on, right? The terrestrial side? Mm-hmm. Um, is it is how different is it then for space usage versus hey let me just throw up one of these units over here in a in our uh, workspace? There's actually a lot of similarities. Um, for example, the reactor that we're developing for the lunar surface uses the exact same nuclear fuel that our terrestrial reactor does. It's a high performance fuel is uh, inherently um, resistant towards accidents. You're not going to have meltdowns. Um, retains all the fission products, which is the bad things that, ha- that are, are the are the things that ha- are produced during a nuclear reaction. It contains them. You're not going to have nuclear fallout. Um, those are the same. They they translate across the board. How we control these systems. Similarly, the autonomous control methodologies also translate across. The differences start showing up when you look at the environment outside of the reactor, right? So when you have power conversion, you always have to have a heat sink somewhere that you're going to put in your waste heat on the ground. We have rivers, we have the atmosphere, you have steam, you have the ocean. It's really relatively straightforward to do in space. You have a vacuum Uh, vacuum is an extremely good insulator. And so you have to design different ways to 
to, to, to get rid of your, 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 your excess heat. And so you develop large radiators, you optimize to have higher temperature materials. There, there's some differences at, at that standpoint, but at its core, the nuclear technology itself is very similar. I appreciate the, the visual analogy of we have rivers and, and, and waters and you stick it in the earth and whatever, it cools down, but in space, a very different environment. Um, but there's benefits, it sounds like, with using vacuums, it is in some ways translates as long as you design it in the right way. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, of course, what comes to my mind is in any sci-fi movie, which everything it, it inspires us, right, to move forward. Most space sci-fi movies, is, if there's a problem with the core, they say eject it, and then they <laughs> you throw it out. Do you ever see a future of like that's going to happen, or sometimes, all right, you just eject the core? I mean, is that realistic? I mean, you probably could. Um, <laughs> you'd have some other problems afterwards because you still need power. But yeah, you that's you could eject the core. <laughs> <laughs> For for you, what um, what do you see as kind of the the next steps? Obviously, you're you're working with um, NASA and DARPA and, and and being able to develop these. Is is the next stage for for commercial companies to start saying, all right, now we're going to build our own spacecrafts, our own plans, and then they would just start using your uh, equipment, asking you to build that that technology, or help me understand, like, what's the next steps from here for you guys? So there are a number of things. Um, one is, you know, the, the government plays a very important role in all of this in de-risking the technology. That's, that's what uh, one of the things that government is almost built for these days is helping to, you know, develop the first systems, develop key components, testing them. Um, and they're doing that right now with the NASA Nuclear Thermal Propulsion Program, as well as these surface vision power programs. And so there we're, we're being active players and applying for those and winning, winning these opportunities. Now, coupled with that, there's also a lot of education on our part, which is educating people and companies that are interested in doing these intensive activities in space, that this is a very real capability that is coming online and that they should start planning for them and designing their systems to be able to take full advantage of them. Now, this is all, you know, keeping in mind that's like, you know, you plan for these activities and then we'll be there for it. And so that's how, you know, you educate your customers to then build capabilities that need what the product that you're working on. And then you enable a whole in-space e economy and infrastructure that then goes from there. That education piece. Um, whenever there's a new technology comes along, there's usually resistance, something new. Not everyone loves change. Not everyone loves being able to do a, a, a new technology because it's, I don't know, unknown. There's fear. Will it work? What's, what's the upside versus downside of versus I go with something known. How do you solve that challenge of, a, of a getting people to adopt a new technology? Well, nuclear is actually kind of a, an odd uh, an oddball when it comes to this, because, you know, ex since the 60s, since, you know, Fenner von Braun started making plans for colonization of Mars, you know, as soon as he landed, they, they're able to land on the moon. They knew that in order to do everything they wanted to do in space, they needed nuclear technology. Mm -hmm. Like they've been doing this since the 60s and 70s. And so it's acknowledged that it's a enabling capability. Mm -hmm. The problem was that this was back started back in the 60s and 70s. And it hasn't happened yet, right? And so there's a lot of folks who have been, you know, they, they know about nuclear, they know what it can in, in, enable, but they don't believe that it can actually be done within the timelines and budgets of modern space programs. Mm. And so a lot of what we do is, you know, 
one showing that we know what we're doing. We have detailed plans and, 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 and development timelines. And not only do we have these plans, but we're also executing on them. That we have milestones that we're hitting, that we're producing hardware, that we are getting validation from these government programs. It's a lot of trust building. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting. I appreciate you painting the picture that it's like, okay, we all know it. it's not technically new, but it's lost its steam. It's lost its energy. It's, it's focus of lost its energy. Obviously, <laughs> use that idiom, but. People say, really, I, I thought we maybe we should move on to something better, something newer, because it's old. Bringing that focus back to saying, no, there actually this is a viable option. Just looking at it in a new way. Um, what do you see as as your your barriers to, to to kind of overcome that? Is it just being able to draw back to the the core fundamentals of it? Well, so actually, part of that is s- switching from an inherently weapons-grade system to a commercial system mm-hmm. using this high-assay, low-enriched uranium fuel, that, I think, has changed the entire conversation when it comes to nuclear systems for space applications. I feel like there, there is a little bit, you, you said, like a snowball effect happening more and more in HALU. I, if I heard, rec, heard correctly, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they, they announced they were going to run on, on HALU as well. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Basically, every new every nuclear system that is being developed right now uses high assay low enriched uranium or low enriched uranium. Gotcha. All the even like the mobile reactor program that the DoD is doing right now mm. is using high assay low enriched uranium. Wow, is it important to get popular interest as well? Like like the general consumer, does it matter for them uh, to to know about this, or is it just? matters for, for the leaders of corporations and, and government? I think there's actually a very strong, well, it's very important that the general public knows what we're doing and understands why we're doing it and how we're doing it. Nuclear has, for good reasons, you know, garnered interest, right? You know, if, if an accident happens, it affects all of us in one way or another. And so for the public to understand why it works, why it's safe, that we are doing our job right, that we are conscious of our systems being ultra safe, um, it's, it's very important. Otherwise, it doesn't fly. Yeah. Uh, let's actually just take a second to talk about that. Why is it safe? <laughs> like, just in layman terms, like, <laughs> how can you say that nuclear is safe when so many movies have told me that it's not? So this is actually uh, kind of, ties into a little bit the philosophy of, of, of our parent company. Um, I mean, I guess at, at, at the very basic, at, at the very fundamental step, um, the philosophy that ultra safe nuclear took is that no system that we develop should be unsafe. Like at, it's, the first thing that we do when we look at these new designs is that it has to be safe. Now, what does that mean? It means that if there's any off nominal operation, um, if there is a variation in, in the controls, inputs, somebody comes in and, and messes with it, that the reactor will respond inherently and not engage in what is called a, a, a core meltdown. Now, how do you do this? Do you essentially build in a bunch of inherent feedbacks into the system where the reactor will achieve a temperature equilibrium that is below the failure temperature of the fuel, Right. And so in order to do this, we actually take some, some performance reductions 
all to make sure that nothing can happen to the reactor that puts it in an unsafe condition. In addition to this, the nuclear fuel that we have designed and, 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 and developed is able to operate at temperatures that no other nuclear fuel has actually ever been able to do. Um, there's a, it's, a it's, it's known as fully ceramic microencapsulated fuel. So we take the nuclear fuel of uranium, make little BBs out of it, then put multiple ceramic coatings on top of that. And this is known as a triso fuel. This has been around since the seventies. And we then take this triso fuel and put it inside of tank armor. So we take a whole bunch of these and put them inside of silicon carbide, which is you know, stable up to 2,500 degrees Celsius, something like that. Ridiculous temperatures. And then it sits in there and nothing's ever going to come out of that. Like it's... I think of an analogy, it's like you take it, okay, the piece that matters the most, the uranium, bubble, bubble wrap it in this other type of material, and then you put it inside of a tank and then nothing will happen. Yeah, that's, that's the gist of it. Yeah, wow, okay. And so that's, that is at the core of all of our reactors. And that's how we can, and, and by making sure that everything we do in the design of the reactor keeps that high performance fuel within its limits with multiple levels of, uh, um, uh, of, of, of margin, mm -hmm. we're able to have a accident tolerant, ultra safe system. And you mentioned you, you lose some of the power, potential power performance by doing some of this. Yes. But we think that it's the value of taking that performance hit is infinitely worth it to have that guaranteed level of safety. For sure, for sure. So looking at this uh, future of how uh, the moon, and of course I, I follow all the NASA putting out for the Artemis mission and like being able to get back to the moon, put a, put a man back on the moon. What, what, what do you see um, is like the future then? What, what, what do you pontificate uh, the, real, the real reality of uh, moon life will be like? What do I think the reality of moon life will be like? Like in the near future, the next t like 10 years, five, 10 years, uh, what could we be expecting with being able to get people back on the moon? Um, Have you read the book Artemis by uh, the same guy who wrote The Martian? No, I have not. Uh, this is, it's, a, it's an excellent book. It was recommended to me by, uh, by a director of strategy over here that I should, I should read this. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go read it. Uh, that lays out, I think, a very realistic picture of near-term activities on the moon. I mean, the premise of it is, you know, the, the, the first real commercial market on the moon is resorts, you know, Disneyland on the moon. That's the first market. And so in order to have that, you have to have power, you have to have people. Um, and then you have like basically a local economy there supporting Disneyland on the moon. So that's how you have your first permanent human presence in space. Um, it sounds like reading the book, it sounds like a pretty, pretty, pretty good life. Um, and then once you're there, you figure out how to build things or manufacture things on the moon that require these low G environments or near perfect vacuums. And then there you start building an economy out of that. And then it kind of snowballs out from there. Sounds like a good uh, roadmap, game plan, taken out of a sci-fi book. <laughs> I feel like every uh, futuristic technology has been taken out of a, a sci-fi book somewhere. They, they all inspire a lot. So then for, for you, uh, would you go to the moon? Yes. <laughs> no hesitation there. Yeah, definitely would. <laughs> uh, and now what about Mars? Uh, you know, I would also go to Mars. 
I recently got married, so it's becoming a little bit more complicated. Uh, but you know, I, I think I can still put in a, a Mars trip or two. I think I think you also have a, a fairly uh, newborn as well. Uh, yes, <laughs> being new, married, new kid uh, complicates the complicates the trip logistics. Could you see a, a future though um, where, where your your child will be working in, on uh, on the moon and maybe traveling to Mars? I definitely want him to have the option to do that. Yeah, we don't want to make our kids do anything or choose a life or whatever. But, but I definitely want him to have the option where it's an easy one to make. Yes, yeah. If you were to to kind of just share um, for those out there that are that are fascinated, curious about about space and about the the what's happening, um, and give a, just a word of wisdom. For, for where we're headed. Is there anything that comes to your mind that you want to, to be able to share uh, um, of, of where we're headed with space? With space. Mm-hmm. So space is one of those interesting environments where today, a lot of it is in what we call low earth orbit, right? And so that's where a lot of the money has been going. If you look at, you know, market projections, um, you know, the, was it? JP Morgan estimates, you know, trillion dollar markets in, 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 in space. A lot of that is connected to this low Earth orbit activities and telecommunications. Mm. Um, And a lot of it is also caused by the reduction in cost to get into space. Now, if you look even at, you know, 10 years ago when SpaceX first started working on their Falcon 9 rockets, none of that was there. Um, And so in just 10 years, this entire sector has completely opened up because of these kind of tipping point changes in capabilities. Space is, is at the point where we're getting into this LEO phase, where it's an established market. The tipping point for the next phase of that, going into cislunar space and beyond, is just around the corner. And so what we're doing is, a lot of us are doing, is developing those technologies that enable that next tipping point. And if low Earth orbit is a trillion dollar market, you know, what are the estimates for cislunar space and beyond that? It's, uh, the the opportunities are are endless endless for that. What do you see as, as maybe the next couple business opportunities that people should be paying attention but to paying attention to then uh, when it comes to space? Because a lot of tech uh, entrepreneurs are listening to this podcast as well, um, and always looking for what is the next opportunity out there. So right now we have a lot of launchers to get into space. So we've got small sat launchers, we've got SpaceX, which is dominating launching of heavier systems. We've got Blue Origin developing uh, Earth or surface to, to space applications. What is missing is, also, is, is a number of opportunities to go from LEO to other places. How do you get to the next place? Hmm. And there's a couple of companies that are looking at that uh, in space transportation services. But it's definitely but, still uh, it's still ripe. It's still 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 wide open for 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 that. Uh, I I appreciate this um, this opportunity that that is right around the corner. You say we're we're right on this this turning point, this this cusp of of, of moving to uh, uh, for space opportunity going forward. Thank you for for sharing the journey that that you've been on and where you guys are, are for headed for USNC. Is there anything that we should keep an eye out for? Uh, obviously, with the, what you're doing with NASA and DARPA are the big, uh, exciting things. Um, but is there anything else that you're, you're really excited about that you'd want to be able to, to share is just overall where everything is headed? 
Well, our parent company, USNC, is going to have their first uh, full power operation demonstration of a nuclear reactor on the ground in 2026, I believe. Um, it'll be the first advanced reactor built and operated in the North American continent since the That's 70s. Wow, that is very exciting. I imagine there's many steps that had to happen and still happening for, for that. Oh, yeah. No, it, it takes a lot to even get to the point where you can say you're going to have a demonstration. Licensing applications, talking with regulators, a lot of community engagement. To be able to say that and have a timeline that you're sticking to is, is pretty momentous. Oh, man. Well, I'm excited for that and for, for where you guys are headed. In, in many cases, your timelines are longer than a general tech company uh, because of the regulations. But nonetheless, the progress is happening. And I feel like that that's the underlying uh, of what we've heard today. For those that, that want to, to learn more, I guess you can go to uh, usnc.com um, and then be able to find both uh, the terrestrial and um, uh, the space systems. One, yeah, I love the website where you can click the button and go up from Earth to space if you want a very trajectory to, to go along there. But yes, usnc.com forward slash space and be able to explore it. Thanks so much, Paolo, for, for sharing your time with us. This is awesome. No problem, it's a pleasure. And we'll see you all on the next episode of Uptech Report. Have you seen a company using AI, machine learning, or other technology to transform the way we live, work, and do business? Go to uptechreport.com and let us know. 